Welcome to a live recording of Pilates Elephants. Great to be here. And today I want to talk about anterior pelvic tilt and other made-up dysfunctions. And uh, really, uh, it's mainly about anterior pelvic tilt, but there uh, we're going to peripherally talk about a couple of other things in there as well. Uh, so if uh, we are streaming this live on uh, a bunch of platforms, and so if you're in the live audience, great to have you here, and uh, the technology gods, I believe, will allow us to have questions. So if you are on Instagram or YouTube uh, or wherever you are, uh, you can type in a question into the chat. And uh, I believe it will show up in my feed here. So I'd love to love to have this be a conversation. And um, if anything you know, pops into your brain or if anything's not making sense or you want to comment or agree or disagree <laughs> as we go along, I'd love to have your input. All right. So, uh, and if you're... Uh, Watch listening to this on the podcast app, or uh, you know, watching this on YouTube or wherever afterwards. Um, and if you've got questions or want to chat, participate in this, you can in fact uh, just reach out to me in uh, the show notes. There, you can reach out to me as a DM in on uh, Instagram. That's where I'll receive it. All right. So uh, I think uh, what I want to start by talking about is. The idea in, or the elephant, I think here in the Pilates world is that anterior pelvic tilt is, uh, indicates muscle. Well, there are so many myths about anterior pelvic tilt. Firstly, that it, it indicates muscle imbalances. So if you, you know, when I was a kid, uh, in Pilates years and I was growing up in the stop Pilates training, uh, I was taught that anterior pelvic tilt indicates, uh, short and or strong hip flexors and lower back muscles uh, and slash or long and or weak abdominals, glutes and hamstrings. And so when I was uh, assessing a client, if I you know, palpated their ASIS and their PSIS and PSS was higher than the ASIS, I would conclude that they you know needed to strengthen their abs and glutes and hamstrings and stretch the hip flexors and low back and I would write the program accordingly for that. Um, uh, and we'll probably do some sort of, you know, exercises based around control, you know, of the pelvis and trying to improve their posterior tilt, like, you know, maybe supine leg lifts or, you know, that type of thing to you know, maintain a posterior pelvic tilt or a more neutral pelvis whilst moving the leg. So I would, you know, base my exercises on the, you know, the pelvic alignment that I uh, measured in the posture assessment. And so the myth that uh, it turns out that that is a myth, <laughs> that pelvic tilt indicates muscle balance. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and the other kind of parts of that, or the other myths that go along with that, I think, for anterior pelvic tilt is that it uh, places undue stress or strain on certain body parts so that if you have an anterior pelvic tilt, that causes additional kind of like, quote, wear and tear um, on maybe the low back or the hip joints or, you know, some other you know, part of the body. Um, and that it can lead to back pain. Um, uh, 
So I think, you know, all of those um, turn out to be not true. Those are all things that I used to believe and the things that I was taught. And I think they're things that a lot of people in Plato's world still do uh, assume to be true. Turns out they're not. So the reality is actually weak. And, and I've spent like the last four years or five years looking very deeply into the science on this, um, that we can't actually measure pelvic tilt um, without expensive equipment like x-rays, um, or you know, inclinometers and things like that. Um, it turns out that pelvic tilt is normal. Like the vast majority of people actually have an anterior pelvic tilt uh, when we measure it with x-rays and things. Um, it turns out that anterior pelvic tilt doesn't correlate with pain or injury. And also it turns out that pelvic tilt is actually not even associated with muscle strength or length. So whether someone has an anterior, posterior or neutral pelvic uh, position, doesn't tell you anything about how strong, weak, short, or long their hip flexors, abdominals, glutes, or hamstrings, uh, or low back are. So basically everything <laughs> I learned about pelvic tilt turns out to be not true. And if you've uh, been taught those same things, uh, hopefully this will be of interest and use for you. All right. So the thing is, though, that intuitively it kind of does make sense. Like if you think about the, the 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 pelvis and the hip joint and the low back, you know, the lumbopelvic complex, as it's called, as kind of like a tent pole with guy ropes, you know, and the guy ropes being the muscles and the tent pole being the bones, okay, maybe the tent pole is the pelvis, Okay, and you've got the muscles pulling, you know, on both sides of the pelvis. So you've got the the glutes and hamstrings pulling downwards at the back, and the hip flexors pulling downwards at the front. You've got the low back extensors pulling upwards at the back, and the abdominals pulling upwards at the front. Okay, so we've got those kind of four groups of muscles uh, juxtaposed or in opposition, in a dynamic opposition with each other. That it kind of makes sense intuitively if we think, well, if if the hamstrings were pulling more, okay, well, that would, if the hamstrings were pulling more than the hip flexors, well, that would pull the pelvis into a posterior tilt. Or if the hip flexors were pulling more than the hamstrings, that would pull the pelvis into an anterior tilt. So if the hamstrings were a bit longer than the hip flexors, well, that would allow the pelvis to go anterior. Or if the hip flexors were a bit, you know, tighter or stronger, that would pull the pelvis into an anterior tilt. That kind of does make sense. And that's the model I had in my mind for many years. Uh, but it, it turns out that that's not true. <laughs> um, so, the, and there are, there are a couple of ways that we, you know, we, we, we know uh, that this is not true. One is, um, when we do research on, you know, we, we get in like, you know, 50 or 80 people and we measure their pelvic tilt by an X-ray or by putting an inclinometer on their sacrum uh, and their low back or whatever. And so we measure their pelvic tilt and then we measure their hamstring length. And we find that, you know, some people have a more anterior pelvis, some people have a more posterior pelvis. Some people have longer hamstrings. Some people have shorter hamstrings. And then we look at the correlation between those things. And what we find is there's no correlation. So people with anterior pelvic tilt could have longer hamstrings. They could also have shorter hamstrings. 
Um, people with posterior pelvic tilt could have longer hamstrings. They could also could have shorter hamstrings. Just like, say, um, having blonde hair and liking ice cream. They're just not related to each other. Um, and, you know, that is quite surprising. <laughs> that was quite surprising to me um, when I learned it. I'm like, oh, well, that kind of, like, I can't see how that makes sense. Um, and it doesn't stop there, though, uh, because we also find that not just hamstrings, but uh, hip flexors. When we look at someone's range of motion into hip extension, so like how the length of the hip flexors, uh, and then we measure their pelvic tilt, and we find those things are not correlated. Um, and it also extends further into the low back and the abdominals. So when we measure the stiffness of somebody's low back um, or the stiffness of their uh, or the strength of their abdominals, we find, and then we measure their pelvic tilt, we find that those things are just not correlated. And so there's a there's a few studies that I'll I'll put in the show notes um, of this recording, uh, and one is uh, from 2021. Does passive hip stiffness or range of motion correlate with spinal curvature and posture during quiet standing by Elliot et al. in the Gait and Posture Journal. Um, and in fact, another one from 1986, this is like 40 years old at this point, um, from Toppenberg et al. called The Interrelation of Spinal Curves, Pelvic Tilt and Muscle Lengths in the Adolescent Female from the Australian Journal of Physi Physiotherapy, they actually found that longer glutes and hamstrings were associated with less pelvic tilt <laughs> in this study. So, and there are just a, 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 a large number um, of studies in this vein. So here's another one from Walker et al. from 1987, relationship between lumbar lordosis, pelvic tilt, and abdominal muscle performance from the Physical Therapy Journal. And they found that lumbar lordosis and pelvic tilt and abdominal strength were unrelated. And so, you know, we can, we can, there are many more studies that I could, uh, you know, uh, quote here, but, and I'll pop a few of these in the show notes. But so it turns out that the when we measure these things, they're not correlated. And so like then we have to form a different common sense mental model of how pelvic tilt works, right? So if we think of that model that I described just at the beginning of kind of like the, the tent pole with the guy ropes pulling in different directions and the tent pole being the pelvis and the guy ropes being the muscles. And we think about, okay, muscles pulling more or less on one side would cause the pelvis to move, you know, in one direction or another. And then when we actually measure those things and we find, oh, well, how strong or tight or long or weak or whatever the muscles are doesn't correlate with the position of the pelvis. Like, oh, oh well, what does cause the position of the pelvis then? Um, and or how could you know that muscle being longer not influence the position of the pelvis, right? So I've got these muscles pulling on both sides of the pelvis, and one of them is stronger than the other, or one of them is longer than the other. Like, why wouldn't that influence the position of the pelvis? Well, it turns out that uh, when you think about it even a little bit in more depth, that intuitive model of the tent pole and the guy ropes actually doesn't make sense. So let's do a little uh, thought experiment here. So imagine you've got your your pelvis 
yeah, and the hip joint there, and you've got your hamstrings, uh, you know, pulling at the back of the pelvis onto the ischial tuberosities, are pulling the back of the pelvis downwards. And then you've got your hip flexors at the front of the pelvis, pulling on the pretty much the ASIS and the AIIS just below it, pulling the front of the pelvis downwards. So we've got the hip flexors pulling the front of the pelvis downwards, and the hamstrings pulling the back of the pelvis downwards. And so if those two muscles or muscle groups were in dynamic equilibrium, if they were both pulling, you know, equal, with equal force, then you, the pelvis would be in midpoint. It would be in neutral. Whereas if the hamstrings pull harder, the pelvis would be in a posterior tilt. And if the hip flexors pull harder, the pelvis will be in an anterior tilt. Well, it turns out that, you know, those muscles are in quiet standing, are almost completely switched off, right? In quiet standing, your hamstrings and hip flexors are working at a very small percentage of their maximum contraction, like under 10%. So they're basically like barely on. So strength doesn't come into it, right? the actual ability of that muscle to contract and produce maximal force, in other words, strength, is irrelevant to posture in quiet standing because the muscle is producing like 5% of its maximum force, right? So if the muscle was stronger or weaker, it's like it doesn't matter because it's producing so little force anyway, okay? If the hip flexors were, you know, just let's just say, for the sake of keeping things simple, okay, that both of those muscles in normal standing, hip flexors and hamstrings, are contracting at about 5% of their maximum, right? Well, just say that you were somebody who had incredibly strong hip flexors. Your hip flexors were double as strong as your hamstrings. Now, I don't think, I don't believe I've ever met anybody whose hip flexors are double as strong as their hamstrings, okay? But let's just say that your hip flexors were double as strong as your hamstrings. Right. Well, that would mean that your hamstrings would need to contract at 10% of their maximum in order to match the pull of the hip flexors. Right. So they have to go up from 5% to 10%, which is still almost nothing. If you lift, if you did a bicep curl with a weight that was 10% of your maximum, you could probably do like 2,000 repetitions, okay? 10% is like you probably wouldn't even notice it. It is such a light weight. It is very, very small. <laughs> so even if you had those hip flexors were double as strong, which they're not, okay, In unless you just got some, like I can't imagine a situation where someone's hip flexors would be double as strong. Even in such a, an extreme situation, the hamstring could easily compensate and still not even notice the difference, right? Because the level of activation of those muscles, and it's the same for the abdominals. The transverse abdominus uh, in quiet standing or sitting is working at well below 10% of its maximum contraction, right? And same with the abdominals, et cetera. So those muscles, when you're just you know standing around, are almost inactive or sitting around are almost inactive. And so if one of those muscles was, was stronger than the other, well, the other one could easily compensate by just going from almost completely off to 
a bit slightly bit more on, right? And still be well below it's anywhere near what would be perceived as a difficult you know, effort. So I think, you know, that, that sort of common sense model doesn't really make sense from a strength perspective when we think about it, uh, in, you know, in that light. And when we think about it from a flexibility perspective, it also doesn't make sense, right? So I was also told, uh, and I believed for many years, and I used to teach this when I, you know, back in the early 2010s, when I was teaching, uh, instructor trainers, I, Pilates instructors, like I used to teach them this. Um, I, I've probably stopped teaching this in about 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh, so I've definitely been there and I've trained a bunch of people in this. But when you think about it more, uh, I guess in more, in more detail, uh, it doesn't make sense that flexibility of the hamstrings or hip flexors would be an issue either. So when you're standing, Okay, with your pelvis in roughly neutral, the hip is roughly, uh, it, you know, I wouldn't say it's in its mid-range, but it's it is uh, certainly not at end range. So, if your hip flexors were tight enough to pull on the pelvis and not allow you to get into neutral, okay, because they're too tight. That would mean that you couldn't extend your hip at all. You couldn't take the leg behind the body at all, which would mean that you couldn't walk or run or you know do many other <laughs> activities that involve having the you know do a lunge, for example. Okay, if you can do a lunge, your hip flexors allow your hip. That means your hip flexors can lengthen enough so your hip goes your leg goes behind your body. Okay. So if your hip flexors can lengthen enough that your leg can extend behind your torso, right, well, then by definition, when the pelvis is in neutral and the leg's in neutral, the hip flexors are not at end range, right? They're somewhere in the middle part of their range. So if the hip flexors are not at end range, how can tight hip flexors limit the position of the pelvis if they're not at end range, right? If they're in the middle of their range. Same with hamstrings. If we, we, I was taught, you know, I was told and I believe for many years that overly long hamstrings or hamstrings that are longer than hip flexors would allow the pelvis to move into a more anterior tilt. But think about it. When you're standing with the pelvis in neutral and the hip in neutral, the hamstrings are nowhere near full range, right? Hamstrings are probably in the, like in their true mid-range with the hip neutral, okay? For the average sort of adult you know, human, you can probably bring the hip to about 90 degrees or 80 degrees of flexion, okay, knee in front of the body, with the knee straight, Okay, and you can probably bring the the hip into probably ten or twenty degrees of extension with the knee bent like a hundred degrees or thereabouts. Right, so you probably are very close to your true mid range of the hamstrings, right, halfway from full flexion to full extension when you're standing with your neutral hip and neutral pelvis. Right now, 
if your hamstrings were longer than average, so I just say you can do like a full forward fold with your chest on your knees, okay? Well, that doesn't, like, why would that influence the hamstrings in their mid-range, right? So if the hamstrings are in the mid-range with the hip neutral and the pelvis neutral, it's like, how could the ability to do a forward fold influence the hamstrings in that position. It's like they're no, even for somebody who's so unbelievably tight that they can't even reach their fingertips to their knees, right, in a forward bend, the hamstrings are still basically in the mid-range in that hip position where the hip's neutral and the pelvis is neutral. So it just doesn't make sense that flexibility of the hamstrings, either more or less flexibility of the hamstrings, would make any difference to the pelvic position in that mid-range alignment because the hamstrings just simply are in their mid-range, right? So it doesn't matter how flexible the hamstrings are because we're not testing hamstring flexibility with the hip in that position, right? It's just not, it's not a consideration in that position. So when we think closely about that model of the, you know, the tent pole and the guy ropes, you know, muscles pulling on the pelvis from both front and back, it actually doesn't make sense. Right? It's not intuitively um, logical uh, because those muscles are at such a low percentage of their maximum voluntary contraction, okay, in quiet standing, and because they're all basically in their mid-range in that position, right? So the, the strength doesn't come into it because they're working so little and they can easily compensate if they were a bit weaker by just working a teeny bit harder, like going from... of their maximum contraction to 10% of the maximum contraction. And the flexibility doesn't come into it because they're all in their, basically in their mid-range, right? So it doesn't matter how flexible they are. If they're more or less flexible than average, doesn't make any difference because we're not testing flexibility. We're literally in the mid-range. So that model, real, that mental model of, you know, muscles pulling on the pelvis to, to, to sort of uh, determine this pelvic tilt really just doesn't make sense. And that fits with what we see in the literature, which when we measure people's hamstring length, hip flexor length, abdominal strength, back stiffness, et cetera, it just doesn't correlate with their pelvic position. Uh, furthermore, w- when we actually uh, strengthen these muscles it, or stretch these muscles, it also doesn't change pelvic position. So there have been some research studies uh, showing that uh, that looked at uh, stretching hamstrings. Okay, so we, they, the researchers, this was uh, Levine et al. 1997, the effect of abdominal muscle strengthening on pelvic tilt and lumbar lordosis uh, from the journal Physiotherapy Theory and Practice. Uh, and what they did was they uh, tested uh, uh, abdominal abdominal strength, and they used actually the abdominal strength test that Kendall et al. use in their book, um, Tet Muscles Testing and Function with Posture and Pain, um, which is what a lot of Pilates uh, you know, posture analysis and muscle testing is based on. Um, and so they use the lo- leg lowering test. So basically you lie on your back, you press your low back to the floor, you lower your legs, you see how much you can keep your pre- low back pressed to the floor. So test the abdominal strength using that test. And then they measured pelvic tilt. And then then they did eight weeks of abdominal strengthening. Okay. And then they measured abdominal strength again and pelvic tilt again. And what they found was after eight weeks of abdominal strengthening, people's abdominals got stronger. Yay. But their pelvic tilt didn't change. Right. So strengthening abdominals didn't change pelvic tilt. 
And in another research uh, study by Lee et al. from 1996 called The Effect of Hamstring Muscle Stretching on Standing Posture on and on Lumbar and Hip Motions During Forward Bending, <clears throat> excuse me, from the journal Physiotherapy, um, what they did was something very similar, but they did it for hamstring length. So they did the uh, passive straight leg raise, which is basically where you lie on your back with one leg straight out along the floor and the other leg straight and lifted up. And then the researcher or, you know, the practitioner lifts up the leg that is up and kind of pushes it up towards its maximum stretch where it's, they feel uh, the onset of discomfort. And so uh, the passive straight leg raise, uh, they... The research is started out by measuring people's passive straight leg raise, which is also actually the same test we use for hamstring length in Kendall et al. posture uh, uh, muscles testing and function. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, they, so they measured the hamstring length and then they measured pelvic tilt. And then they did, uh, I think it was eight weeks of hamstring stretching. And then they measured hamstring length again and measured pelvic tilt again. What they found was, Eight weeks of hamstring stretching improved hamstring flexibility, but did not change pelvic tilt. So we we find that uh, muscle, hamstring length, abdominal strength, hip flexor length, hip flexor strength, low back stiffness, uh, all of these things don't correlate with pelvic tilt. And what's more, when we change these things, it doesn't change pelvic tilt. So it seems extremely clear from, you know, a large number of research papers, some of which I've mentioned here, a lot of others, though, um, that just pelvic tilt and muscle balance just are not correlated. So pelvic tilt uh, and muscle balance just not related. They're not in a relationship. And so knowing what someone's pelvic tilt is doesn't tell you anything useful about how long or strong, or weak, or short, any of their muscles are. So that was a big one. <laughs> when I learned that, that was a big one for me. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that is not what I thought. But it turns out that is uh, that is what um, is the case. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, what does cause all these people <laughs> to have anterior or posterior pelvic tilt in the first place? So uh, looking deeper into that, we find that in fact, well, how do we even know these people have an anterior pelvic tilt? Because it turns out that the methods that I was taught to measure pelvic tilt by palpating or feeling the anterior superior iliac spine, the ASIS, and the posterior superior iliac spine, the PSIS, and the front of the back of the pelvis, and looking at the relative position of those two bony landmarks, like was one higher or lower than the other. And then saying, okay, if the PSIS is higher, that's an anterior tilt. If PSIS is lower, that's a posterior tilt. Um, you know, that turns out to be not a reliable way of measuring pelvic tilt. And here is why. There are two reasons why that is not a reliable way of measuring pelvic tilt. The first is that pelvises are not symmetrical, right? So when I was a kid in Stop Pilates, I was taught that uh, on females, when the PSIS is one to two centimetres higher than the ASIS, that is a neutral pelvis. If the PSIS is more than two centimetres higher than the ASIS, that's an anterior tilt. If it's less than one centimetre, that's a posterior tilt. On a male, when they're level, 
If the PSOS is higher, that's an anterior tilt. If it's lower, that's a posterior tilt. That's what I was taught. But uh, when we look at uh, pelvises uh, in a lab um, situation, we find that's not actually true. So there was a study, which is one of my favorite studies of all time in relation to posture, posture by Priest et al. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, yes, here it is. So Priest et al. from uh, 2008, variation in pelvic morphology may prevent the identification of anterior pelvic tilt from the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy. Uh, and what Priest et al. did, and I'll link to this in show notes, was they got, I think, like 20 or 22 pelvises uh, from people who donated their bodies to science. And they put them in a jig, which is just a fancy name for a bracket, okay, that they bolted to the wall. And the bracket or the jig held the pelvis and they adjusted it. You know, they could adjust the tilt of the pelvis in this bracket. You know, could you know, tilt the, the bracket forwards or tilt the bracket backwards. And they adjusted it until the pelvis was in a perfectly neutral position. Now, that uh, just to remind you, uh, the, the textbook definition of a neutral pelvis is where the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are vertically aligned, right? So the pubic bone and the front of your hip bone there on the, the poky bit on the front of your hip bone, they're aligned vertically. Now, we obviously, we don't measure that in like a Pilates setting because we don't, you know, palpate people's symphysis pubis. So what we do is we palpate the ASIS and the PSIS Right, and then we say, okay, if the ASIS and the PSIS are aligned, well, that correlates with the ASIS and the symphysis pubis being aligned. But actually, the actual definition of neutral pelvis is the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are in alignment. And so the researcher preset our, you know, set up this jig and you know jiggled it back and you know, moved it back and forth until the pelvis, each pelvis, they measured each half of the pelvis, the left half and the right half of each pelvis of these 20 or 22 or whatever pelvises, um, until the ASIS and the symphysis pubis were perfectly vertically aligned. And then they looked at the relative height of the PSIS. Like, is, you know, in when this pelvis is perfectly neutral, is the PSIS higher, lower, or about the same height, or not about exactly <laughs> the same height as the ASIS? And what they found... Um, was up to 23 degrees difference, right, um, between different pelvises, right? So 23 degrees is like, it was like four centimetres or something, right? Very, a very big difference, okay, in just the position of the PSIS when the pelvis is neutral, right? So on some people, when the PS, when the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are vertically aligned, okay, the PSIS was level with the ASIS. On other pelvises, when the PSIS, when the ASIS and the symphysis pubis were vertically aligned, the PSIS was like four centimetres higher <laughs> than the ASIS, and the pelvis was perfectly neutral, right? Because by definition, when the symphysis pubis and the ASIS are aligned, that is a neutral pelvis. So the, what this shows is that the position of the PSIS relative to the ASIS is not a reliable indicator of whether the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are aligned, right? Because some people's PSISs are just higher up than others, right? That's just the way their pelvis is shaped 
is that the bony structure at the back of the pelvis is not the same on every person. So when we palpate someone's PSIS and we go, oh, the PSIS is like three centimeters higher than the ASIS, ASIS, well, that doesn't give us enough information to know whether their ASIS and their symphysis pubis are vertically aligned. Because it's like, well, how do we know if this is a person whose PSIS and ASIS are level, who's in a massive anterior tilt, or how do we know if it's a person who PSIS is four centimetres higher than the ASIS and they're actually in a posterior tilt, right? And there's no way we can know that without either putting an inclinometer on their symphysis pubis and ASIS, which is not within the scope of a Pilates instructor, okay, or taking an X-ray or something, which is also not within the scope of a Pilates instructor. So in the clinic, in the studio, there's no way that we can accurately measure pelvic tilt because differences in bony morphology, and morphology is a sciencey word for shape, okay, differences in the bony shape of the pelvis prevent accurate identification of pelvic tilt, according to Priest et al. in 19, oh, sorry, in 2008. Uh, so I said there were two reasons why we can't measure pelvic tilt. Um, and the first one is that pelvises are not shaped symmetrically. Um, the second reason is that humans are terrible at accurately palpating bony landmarks. Now, when I say humans, I mean even experienced like chiropractors, physical therapists, and orthopedic surgeons, okay, can't agree on the location of bony landmarks. There's one study from 2003 from Federac et al. called Reliability of the Visual Assessment of Cervical and Lumbar Lordosis, How Good Are We? from the Spine Journal. And they looked at 28 chiropractors, physical therapists, and orthopedic surgeons. And they viewed pho photos of the same patients and they were asked about whether they had an increased lordosis or a decreased lordosis or a neutral lordosis. And they, there was only a 16%, 1-6% agreement between these experienced professionals on whether these patients had an increased or decreased lordosis, right? So this is something pretty basic. Like, do they have an increased or decreased lordosis? This is not like super fine detailed stuff. And we had only a 16% agreement on this. Uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control in the US, uh, in a 2014 paper by Lowe et al. called Observation-Based Posture Assessment, Review of Current Practices and Recommendations for Improvement, found that visual assessment of posture is accurate to within 30 degrees, right? 30 degrees is massive. <laughs> I mean, 30 degrees is l l like just huge, okay? Um, and so they find that that is the most you know, that is accurate to within 30 degrees, right? Plus or minus 15 degrees. Um, there was a study by Kilby et al. in 2012 called Manual Palpation of Lumbopelvic Landmarks, a validity study in the journal Manual Therapy. And they had a bunch of, I think it was osteopaths in this study, uh, palpate the location of the posterior superior iliac spine. Uh, and what they found was that the palpation was accurate to within 15 to 20 millimetres, right? 1.5 to 2 centimetres. That is almost an inch, 
right? An inch is 2.6 centimeters or 26 millimeters. So 15 to 20 millimeters, that is how accurate experienced, I think they were osteopaths in this study, okay? But manual manual uh, therapy professionals of some description. Um, 15 to 20 millimeters margin for error, okay? So if you're, if you're palpating the ASIS and the PSIS, okay, and your PS, your finger on the PSIS is 15 millimeters too high because you just that's only how accurate we can be, and your finger on the ASIS is 15 millimeters too low, well, that's a difference of three centimeters, which is more than an inch. Okay, so just humans, even when we think we're really good at palpating these things, we're actually not very good at all at accurately identifying the location of these bony landmarks. And so that is the second reason, dear listener, <laughs> why uh, it turns out that you can't even measure pelvic tilt in a Pilates studio setting. So there's two reasons are, one, just pelvises are not symmetrical, and even if we could accurately palpate the PSIS and the ASIS, it turns out that the position of those bony landmarks is highly variable in different people, and even side to side in the same person. Uh, and secondly, we're just crap at uh, palpating those bony landmarks. Even when we think we're good, we're actually not good. So experienced orthopedic uh, surgeons, physical therapists, osteopaths can't agree on even whether someone's in a lordosis or not. Um, so uh, the final thing I want to talk about today, so we've, we've talked about the fact that um, pelvic tilt doesn't correlate with muscle balance, doesn't correlate with the strength or length of the hamstrings, hip flexors, abdominals, you know, low back, glutes, etc. And why that is because uh, those muscles are working at such a low level of, of activity in standing that it's like they're working at a single digit percentage of their activity. So it's like, well, strength doesn't really come into it because they could just work a bit harder and make up for any weakness and still be working very, very little. Uh, and also length doesn't come into it because they're basically in their mid-range when you're in quiet standing. So it doesn't matter if they're long or short because like that wouldn't influence their behavior in a mid-range position. And what we find is in the science, when we measure those things, they're not correlated. And when we change those things by strengthening the abs or lengthening the hamstrings or whatever, it doesn't change pelvic tilt. And secondly, we found that when we uh, try and measure pelvic tilt, we're actually not measuring what we think we're measuring because the height of bony landmarks, the position of bony landmarks is highly variable between people. And what we're probably just measuring is the fact that someone's got a higher PSIS rather than the fact that they're in an anterior or posterior pelvic tilt. And secondly, we're not even measuring what we think we're measuring because we're actually probably a centimeter or more away from the true location of that bony landmark. Um, and so we just we're not we're not even able to meaningfully measure those things in the um, in the clinic or in the in the studio. Um, and the last thing I want to uh, talk about is um, uh, you know why I think uh, um, Oh, sorry. The, the last thing I want to talk about in relation to, you know, why pelvic tilt is a made-up dysfunction, okay, is that number one, it's not related to muscle balance. Number two, we can't even measure it meaningfully. Number three is it actually doesn't cause a problem. 
Um, so, you know, one of the things that I was taught, like I said, at the start, uh, when I was learning this stuff in Stop Pilates was that, you know, in, when you're in an anterior pelvic tilt, that causes sort of undue wear and tear or stress on certain joints. Maybe there's, um, the SI joints, maybe the hip joints, maybe the lumbosacral joint, you know, the L5S1 joint, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that can cause, you know, irritation, pain, injury, et cetera. Uh, well, it turns out this is not true. Uh, so a couple, couple of studies I want to um, you know, think about here. Uh, the first one is that uh, a study, which I love, this one by Harrington et al. 2011, and they, their study was called Assessment of the Degree of Pelvic Tilt Within a Normal Asymptomatic Population in the Journal Manual Therapy from 2011. So asymptomatic just means pain-free. And so what they did was they had about 270, I think, uh, pain-free men and women, and they measured their pelvic tilt, uh, and then they asked them about, you know, do they have back pain? Um, uh, sorry, yeah, do they have back pain, et cetera? And so, sorry, the inclusion criteria were they don't have back pain. Um, so these were people with no back pain, no hip pain, et cetera, and they just measured their pelvic tilt. And what they found was, and so they measured the pelvic tilt with, I think, with inclinometers. Um, so like a bubble inclinometer thing that they put on their sacrum. Um, and what they found was 75% of women have an anterior pelvic tilt. 75% of pain-free women have an anterior pelvic tilt. And 85% of pain-free men have an anterior pelvic tilt. Now, let's just think about this for a second and let that sink in. If 75% of people with no pain have this alignment, is it a tilt or is that just the normal shape of the human pelvis? Right? I mean, like, what's the definition of normal? <laughs> like, if the definition of normal is what the majority of pain-free people have, Right. I mean, how do we know what's, what's the normal length of the hamstrings, for example? Well, we get a whole bunch of pain-free people who measure length of their hamstrings. We go, okay, well, the normal length is whatever the average is of all of those people, right? Well, what's a normal pelvic tilt? Well, if we get a whole bunch of pain-free people and we measure their pelvic tilt, we go, okay, the most common pelvic tilt there is the, quote, normal position of the pelvis, right? Now, in all, when, whenever we talk about normal, there's a range, there's a variation, you know, there's people at both sides of you know, if we're talking about average height, you know, that by definition, by definition, it means half people are taller than that and half people are shorter than that, right? So there's no sort of magic thing about being exactly average that we should all aspire to. But when we find that 75% of pain-free people have an anterior pelvic tilt, in quotes, like, well, is it really a tilt? You know, by what definition is it a tilt? And this notion that the pelvis is neutral when the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are aligned vertically. It's like, well, where does that come from? Like, who said what law of nature determines that the symphysis pubis and the ASIS need to be vertically aligned? I mean, that just seems like a completely arbitrary standard. It's like, where would where did that come from? Why would that make any difference to anything? The ASIS and the symphysis pubis are vertically aligned. It's like, so? And when we see that that's not actually the case in 75% of women and 85% of men, 
Like, well, why do we think that that is, quote, normal? I submit to you, dear listener, <laughs> that's not normal. That an, what we think of as an anterior pelvic tilt is, in fact, actually probably just the normal shape of the human pelvis. Finally, there was a study uh, in relation to back pain. Um, let me see if I can dig this one out. Uh, and it was looking at the relationship of posture with back pain. Um, and so this was not a single study where they sort of grabbed a bunch of volunteers and measured their posture and measured their back pain. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of a bunch of studies that had looked at that uh, the, those factors. This was from Chun et al. from the year 2017 called The Relationship Between Low Back Pain and Lumbar Lordosis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from the Spine Journal. And what they found was actually low back pain was associated with a flattened lumbar lordosis. So people with an anterior pelvic tilt in this systematic review and meta-analysis had less back pain than people with a flattened lumbar lordosis, which kind of makes sense if 75% of people have, 75% of pain-free people have an anterior pelvic tilt. So if anterior pelvic tilt is not, is, is normal in pain-free people, is not associated with low back pain. In fact, it's associated with less low back pain. If it's not associated with muscle length or strength, we can't measure it in the studio. Why do we care about it again? Like for what purpose should we should we be concerned with anterior pelvic tilt? What would be the the use? of thinking about it. And I'm going to submit to you that there's actually a, a harm involved. And this is the last thing I want to talk about. There's There are some harms involved in this notion of anterior pelvic tilt that we were all sort of raised up on. Uh, and the, 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 the harms, I think, fall into two categories. The first one is basically nocebo, which is the opposite of placebo, which means a placebo is where we believe a treatment's going to help and therefore it does, even though the treatment itself was not really an active treatment. So in, typically in clinical trials, I give people like a sugar pill uh, and they'll say, oh, this is the real treatment. And they'll see how, you know, some percentage of those people will get better. And that is a placebo effect where there's no active ingredients in the treatment, but the, just the expectation that it will help actually causes it to help. And the opposite of that, uh, is called a nocebo. It's where you expect something will cause harm and therefore it does cause harm. And indeed, when we see in these placebo-controlled trials, in uh, drug trials, what we find is some percentage of people in the placebo arm actually experience side effects. And some percentage of those people actually drop out of the trial because of the negative side effects of the drug, like they get you know, nausea or irritable you know, gut syndrome or dizziness or headaches or migraines or tiredness or whatever as a side effect of the placebo, right? So the nocebo effect is when we expect something to cause harm and therefore it does cause harm. And that's a real documented phenomenon. Uh, and so when we say to somebody, oh, your pelvis is, you know, 
out of whack and your muscles are imbalanced and you're going to cause wear and tear and damage to your joints because of your incorrect alignment, okay, that can have a very real nocebic effect. So we can, we can, that person can become fearful. They can become avoidant of certain movements. Uh, they can anticipate pain in certain movements, which can actually lead to them experiencing pain in those movements. And they often will uh, end up like clenching their abs and their glutes a lot, okay, to you know, quote correct their, you know, quote dysfunctional pelvic position. And dear, dear listener, maybe this is you. Right, maybe because this was me for a while. I used to go around tensing my abs all the time, and I wouldn't say the word tensing my abs. I'd say activating my core, right? <laughs> Which is uh, a euphemism, really, uh, for tensing. Or it's another way of saying, you know, tensing the abs, okay, um, and you know, squeezing my butt. Okay, so if, if that's you, no shame, <laughs> but you don't need to because of all of the reasons we've just talked about, but walking around tensing your abs and butt all the time is not healthy, right? You can't breathe normally with your abs tense. Like as you inhale in normal breathing, the the mechanics of normal breathing are such that as you inhale, the diaphragm contracts and descends, the abdominal wall must relax. The transverse abdominus, the obliques, must relax in order for you to re- inhale into your belly, right? Which is what you mostly do in quiet breathing. Now, if you've got your abs clenched because you're trying to correct your pelvic tilt, okay, as you inhale, well, you have to breathe into your rib cage. You have to breathe into your chest, right? Which is a much more muscularly effortful action, right? So you have to, when you breathe into your rib cage, you have to involve your uh, upper, like your uh, secondary respiratory muscles. So your muscles in your shoulder girdle, like scalenes and mastoids and pectoralis minor and a whole bunch of other ones around the shoulder girdle. And you have to use a lot more active muscle contraction in your torso. Uh, whereas when you breathe into your belly, it's much more relaxed and you're basically just using your diaphragm. Uh, so when you're clenching your abs all the time, if you're trying to correct your pelvic tilt, you're basically causing yourself to breathe in this way that's much more effortful and is that that's typically not the way we breathe when we're relaxed. Uh, and we can you can that can induce a stress response as well. You know, when you're tensing your neck and your upper chest and whatever to breathe into those uh, ancillary breathing with those ancillary breathing muscles. So you know. All in all, it, you know, it's not a good plan, I think, to walk around, you know, clenching your abs. Uh, and so this can cause real harm, right? This could cause actual neck pain for people, right? Um, so secondly, so there's, there's a fear avoidance, okay? The, the fear and the nocebo and the sort of the clenching of the abs and all that kind of stuff that I think can result, doesn't result for everybody, but can result you know, when we convince people that they've got a dysfunctional pelvic tilt and they need to fix it. The second thing is just the opportunity cost, right? So the opportunity cost for the client is if they're working in their Pilates session and we're doing these things to, quote, correct their pelvic tilt, okay? So we're stretching the hip flexors and we're activating their core and we're, you know, doing positional exercises where they're lying on their back and holding their pelvis still and moving their legs in tiny movements and trying to maintain a neutral pelvis and all this kind of stuff. If those exercises don't achieve anything, which they don't, 
right? We've just talked through the evidence on that. They're basically a waste of time. And that means we could be in that hour that we're with that client, we could be spending that time on more useful things like just actual whole body strengthening, right? Which will massively benefit this person, whole body stretching, right? Basically just Pilates, okay? Which will be of more benefit to that person. The second thing is that for as instructors, right? If we're spending all of this time you know, studying and thinking on and, you know, practicing and programming for this dysfunction that doesn't exist, this made-up dysfunction of anterior pelvic tilt, that's an opportunity cost for us as professionals that we could be spending that time learning about things and practicing on skills that will actually be of more benefit to us and our clients. Things like how to induce a strengthening response, how to how to improve flexibility, uh, how do people how to help people set and achieve goals and achieve behaviour change, um, you know, how to alleviate back pain, how to address psychosocial factors that influence recovery, how to do post surgical rehab, anatomy, biomechanics, like we could you know all of these things that we could be spending our time on. Okay, there's an opportunity cost if we're thinking about pelvic tilt that we're not spending time on those other things, which I'm going to say now are all more important than pelvic tilt. And the final thing is there are just a set of skills uh, that are not even related to Pilates directly, but I think would probably be of great benefit to most of us to get better at, which are things like negotiating, uh, sales, marketing, pricing, um, you know, attracting clients, Okay, retaining clients, generating referrals, uh, eliciting testimonials from people, like all of these kind of non-Pilates skills that, you know, many of us put off. Well, if we didn't have to, you know, study and do another workshop on how to correct anterior pelvic tilt, well, think of all the extra time we'd have to spend on other skills. So there's a real opportunity cost to this, you know, made-up dysfunction. So, dear listener, I think I've come to the end of what I wanted to to say about this. Uh, and uh, in conclusion, uh, pelvic tilt kind of makes sense intuitively when you think about it on the surface, uh, that the muscles pull on the pelvis in different directions and that kind of determines the pelvic position. But when we look at the science, that's not how it works. And when we think about it more deeply, it also kind of makes sense that that's not how it works because muscles are in their mid-range mostly when in, in when we're in neutral pelvis, so the length wouldn't come into it. And muscles are so have such a low level of recruitment in that neutral standing position that strength doesn't come into it either. Uh, furthermore, pelvises are not symmetrical, and the position to PSIS uh, in standing really has almost no correlation to uh, the, the pelvic alignment. We can really only measure pelvic uh, position with X-ray or inclinometer. Um, and furthermore, humans are just crap at accurately palpating those bony landmarks. Even when we think we're really good at it, like if we're a 10 year experienced osteopath, we're still not very good at it. Um, and, uh, finally, there are, in fact, I believe, um, heart, you know, there are an, oh, well, sorry, not finally, 75% of women, 85% of men, so like 80% of people all, up, all, uh, all up have a, quote, anterior pelvic tilt. So is that like, is that a tilt or is it just the normal position of the human pelvis? You know, who said the ASIS and the symphysis pubis should need to be aligned for the pelvis to be neutral? It's like, 
someone just made up made up that rule and now we're all following it. Uh, and anterior pelvic tilt actually correlates with less low back pain. So, um, uh, you know, and I think, you know, finally there are some harms or two major kind of categories of harms that uh, follow from this sort of obsession that we have with pelvic tilt. One is the, the fear avoidance and the nocebo effect on clients, which is, you know, they avoid movements, they anticipate pain, therefore often they experience pain. Um, and they just go around clenching their abs in their butt, which is not healthy. Um, and finally, the the uh, effect on us as instructors is an opportunity cost for us to actually spend time uh, you know, doing stuff that's more useful for our clients, you know, like whole body strengthening and stretching and uh, stuff that's more useful for us, like learning skills that will actually make us more effective instructors or more, you know, happy or more financially successful instructors as opposed to fixing a non-existent dysfunction. All right, dear listener, thank you so much for your attention throughout this long monologue. I hope you found that interesting. I'll pop all of those research links in the show notes. Thanks so much for, uh, you know, being part of this community. And if you've got any thoughts on this or any questions, send me a, a DM on Instagram. You'll find my link, uh, my profile in the, in the show notes. And I'm much love and I will see you in the next one. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So Rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.